Welcome to Hope Renewed, the podcast of PIR Ministries. Thanks for connecting to Hope Renewed, the in-depth podcast about pastoral renewal and restoration. I'm Tom Jameson, and along with co-host Sean Nemechek, we explore the issues and challenges pastors face and help cultivate a renewed hope for healthy ministry lives. Well, here at PIR Ministries, we're continually asking, if shepherds are caring for their sheep, who's caring for the shepherds? It's the heart of our call as a ministry to serve Christ and his church by caring for the personal and ministry health of those he has called to shepherd the flock and to bring the hope and healing of the gospel to bear when ministry takes its toll on pastors' lives. So it's always exciting to have a chance to talk with a kindred heart. And today, it's our joy to have with us our good friend, Tim Johnson. Yeah, Tim and his wife, Jeannie, have been married for 36 years. And 25 of those years, uh, they served in Japan as missionaries with the Evangelical Alliance Mission. They have two kids. Uh, who are grown and now working with missionary kids as educators in Tokyo, Japan. Tim has served in some capacity of pastoral care since 1997, and for more than nine years, he has served as director of pastoral care for the central region of the missionary church. Uh, He's based in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Tim Johnson, welcome to Hope Renewed. Great to be with you. So we want to just start by asking you to to just tell us a little bit about your ministry journey and what brought you to your current role. Well, it's probably not unlike many people who have grown up in a ministry home. My parents uh, were both pastors and missionaries uh, since the early 50s in Japan. So I grew up overseas as well. And uh, as I thought about my future, of course, I had given my life to the Lord at a young age and had a tender heart toward him, I still didn't think that ministry was going to be part of the trajectory. Uh, Not that I was against it, but it felt too cliche. Mm. But just through a series of events in both in college and in grad school, and then even going back to visit my parents in Japan, I started accessing parts of my own story that were painful. And so Ironically, or maybe not ironically, I'm in ministry today, probably born not just from a call from the Lord, which that definitely happened, but I'm in ministry today, born probably from the pain in my story Mm. and to see God's faithfulness and his sovereignty and his redemptive heart has just been so beautiful. Wow. Yeah, that's that's an important theme, I think. Um, Dan Allender talks about how our trauma, uh, our pain is really what, uh, what creates our opportunity for ministry. So mm-hmm. you, serve, you serve pastors as director of pastoral care. And uh, tell us a little bit, what, what do you do in your work with pastors and churches? So uh, I'm sure someone in this kind of role in other organizations or denominations is going to do it differently. Um, it's interesting, in, in our denomination, I'm probably the only person I know and I happen to serve in the central region, which includes uh, southern Wisconsin, Illinois, and central Indiana. And it's unique because I don't believe there's anyone else doing it in our denomination, not because it's not seen as a need, but when I was actually called to do or invited to do this position uh, to fulfill this role about nine and a half years ago, 
the regional director in our region said, we don't have anyone doing this and we believe it's important. So the whole idea of staffing to a priority uh, was actually the initial reason for that. So nobody's done this before and nobody else is doing it maybe specifically with this role. Um, a lot of regional directors and district superintendents, we use both of those in our nomenclature, do pastoral care for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. That just kind of goes with the territory. So for me, I really had the freedom to create my own job description, as it were, although there were certainly boundaries there. But I think part of the heart of it was the person who hired me was an apostle starting new things. And he knew that I had a real shepherd's heart and I had done that overseas in Japan. So when he invited me to consider this position, actually initially I said no, because at that point we were missionaries in Japan and God had not given us a release. But through a series of events, my wife and I took a, a both did a prayer retreat and it, he made it clear that he was releasing us from Japan. It was very difficult, but we felt like it was the right thing to do because this was a, a wonderful new opportunity. Um, not necessarily the shiny next new thing, but it just seemed to be so clearly what God was leading us to. So I had a lot of freedom to design my own job description. So as I looked at it, and it's kind of morphed over the years, I like to alliterate because my brain works in those ways. <laughs> um, so uh, I supervise their credentialing process for pastors, which means I help with the paperwork and I coach pastors and leaders along the way with the regional credentialing process. And then so either licensing or ordination, we have a two-tiered process that we lead them through. So that's one big section of it. And that's like a lot of more um, forms to fill out, making sure that people know that we still need this form and so forth. So that's one area. But I also do what I call connecting, and that's creating networks for pastors to connect with each other. So we uh, have a, a lead pastors network. That's mostly in our area here. Our, we have a pretty far-reaching region, so not everyone can get together in this particular group. But this is like the Fort Wayne and uh, surrounding areas. We have a lead pastor network that meets quarterly. And then we have a worship pastors network that meets monthly. And... Um, we have a student ministry pastors network that meets bi-monthly, a kids ministry network that meets bi-monthly, and then a care ministry pastor network that has started, but kind of um, on a recess right now, trying to figure out what our next steps are with that. And for me, as I've created those, it's been really exciting for me because I don't want pastoral care to depend on the director of pastoral care. If, if people are depending on me, as my boss often says, if I'm run over by a car tomorrow, then I have not done my due diligence in equipping leaders to do something that we all care about. And it's not person directed, but it's more uh, priority directed. Mm -hmm. So um, that's been a lot of fun to see. And I could talk about that for hours if I uh, was given the opportunity. I just actually had two more, two of those meetings this morning, and I just received so much encouragement just to hear these pastors process together. And then the other other area is camping ministry. And that's working with our high school and middle school and high school camps in June. And then also with the children's camp in July, we've just hired though, a new person, a next gen ministry coordinator who will look over, look after that. So I will have more opportunity to actually develop leaders more with some, a variety of initiatives. 
Mm. Um, so that's exciting for me. And one thing that my, um, I think I even put it on Facebook recently, but my boss said this, we train people for a job, but we develop people for a calling. And I just, I love that. So when you develop people, um, there's a lot of coaching. So that's another part of my job, a fourth C, and I put coaching and care together, coaching pastors, helping them figure out, you know, helping them learn what God has laid on their hearts. And um, I do a lot of one-on-one coaching, but I'm also uh, finishing up uh, two different leadership cohorts where I got a group of either four guys or two guys and helping them kind of work through some issues together, their own growth and so forth. And it's been, I mean, I love it. I wake up in the morning, Mm, you know, telling the Lord, I can't believe I get to do that. And then the care piece is really um, leads into how I've connected with PIR. I, I'm really captivated by the the network idea. I'm captivated by everything you do, but uh, this this idea of creating networks for pastors to be not just meeting together. Uh, I mean, what pastor needs another meeting to go to? But it sounds like you're connecting them with one another so that they can exercise care for one another in these networks. Is that accurate? Yes. So it's the the basic purpose for those networks is. Uh, collaboration, care, and peer equipping. So mm-hmm. they've actually led worship as a team. And you've got a worship pastor from this church and a worship pastor from this church. And, and, and you have a group and they're getting together and leading worship at our regional events, even our national conference they led together. And it's been a lot of fun for them, for them to actually work together. So there's a collaborative piece, but also care. Um, mm. Some of them are going through some really rough times in the context of their churches or even personally. And so there's a lot of prayer around that. And we have a group thread, group text thread that goes on between our meetings. And then the last one is the equipping. I kind of give each time I give somebody in the group the responsibility to lead a conversation on whatever topic they choose. Mm -hmm. And that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I think we found is is that it's so important to develop an environment, uh, a context of safety. Uh, especially for pastors who quite often can feel, you know, whether it's the competitive sense of, you know, oh, you know, we're going to be comparing church size or budget size or things like that with one another, or just a competency thing of, wow, you know, I'm in awe of of these other pastors and they can be very guarded. How, How do you facilitate creation of that safe space that allow pastors to really open their hearts up to one another? Well, this won't be rocket science, but the first one is to go first. Mm. Um, I'm very open about my own story and a lot of pain there. Mm-hmm. In fact, probably some pastors are going, oh, that's too much information. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, and so I have to, you know, have to navigate, steward that well, navigate it well, but um, pretty much going first. So modeling it, uh, but also um, creating a space where I, I tend to, when I'm in charge or facilitating a conversation, it's usually just a few leading questions. Like today with the worship pastors, I said, in 20 years, how would you like people to speak of you and how you added value to the corporate worship experience? That was one question. Mm-hmm. In 20 years, what will people say about the way that you treated people? In 20 years, what will people say about how you treated those closest to you, your spouse, your children, your closest friends? And we unpacked some of those things. And uh, 
like I said, I gave them about five minutes to actually write out their answers. And there were 15 of us at the meeting and uh, we never ran. In fact, we had to move on because once they started talking, um, they were very vulnerable talking about the fact that most of them would like to think that they've created a, an atmosphere of authenticity, safety, transparency. You might not expect that from worship pastors. You might expect worship pastors to talk about worship excellence, mm -hmm. a breadth of, um, you know, the fact is the function remains, you know, giving praise to God, the form changes, um, but they didn't really talk a lot about music, which I thought was fascinating. Um, and I think some of the kinds of things they said is that I want people to know that if they're really struggling, even struggling with their faith, they are welcome. They are welcome in the corporate worship experience. If uh, just, just saying that. And so they're already there. So it really hasn't been my creating or setting the table. It's me just following the lead of the spirit, because a lot of these mm. leaders are younger and they value authenticity. It's mm. just me. It's, it's just my making sure that I'm paying attention to what the spirit is already doing there, reading the room, if you will. You have a, a great opportunity to talk with a, a wide number of pastors and, and, kind of be integrated into the nitty gritty of, of pastoral life with them. What do you, what do you see as the unique challenges that pastors are facing in ministry and life? Would you say more specifically during the last year and a half or just in general? <laughs> yeah, boy, isn't that the truth? The, the last 22 months have kind of shaped the whole context. Um, I, I would say in general, I, I think we all know that the last 22 months have just been gasoline on the fire of things that are already there, as well as introducing a few new things. But yeah, what, what would you say, just reflective overall uh, for, for pastoral life, in the hopes that we won't have to deal with 22 months of what we've been dealing with? I would say um, some of the themes that keep coming up, in fact, they came up as I was meeting with the student ministry pastors today. They deal with all the way from pride, like I have the big youth group, or I'm all that. Kids are responding to me. They're signing up to be mentored by me with all the way to hardcore envy, jealousy, comparison issues. And I, I think it's really interesting. We had a person in our group today who was at a larger church and now is at a smaller church with a very small youth group and is really doing some soul searching about the why of why they're doing ministry. Mm because they had that large group and now they just have a very small group. And I thought to myself, those are real things that we deal with, you know, because we tend to say, well, you know, whether you have five kids or you have 80 kids, you know, you need to do the same preparation, which is true, but we all wrestle with it. Go like, am I spending hours for five students? Mm. Um, so I think, I think it's pride. And then I think it's inadequacy or the whole grasshopper complex thing. And, and I think that beyond that, they're pretty typical issues that most leaders in any context do. I do think, especially for those in kids ministry and youth ministry, student ministry, um, navigating relationships well with both parents and volunteers. I think that's probably one of the biggest issues. Like they're excited. God has been speaking to them. They've taken some time away and they're coming to cast this vision and the students are all on board but then it's the parents are going, really? That's what you came up with for my kids. And, and so they have to deal with like, what is God saying here? Did he speak to me? And to what extent do I 
listen to what the parents are saying, because I do want to be discerning here, but I, I think there's a lot of, you know, not only is there the pride issue or the inadequacy and comparison issue, but uh, really asking the question of the why. In fact, that was one of the conversations, uh, a friend of mine, a dear friend in ministry led a conversation. We all know that we do ministry, but what is the why? Mm. And it's not just the why that you tell yourself or the why that you tell other people. It's not the aspirational why, if you will, it's the real why. And actually the real why is kind of hard to face sometimes because sometimes the real why is I'm a people pleaser, but you don't tell people, you don't tell parents, Oh, by the way, I'm a ministry. Uh, I'm in ministry to your kids because I want, I want you to like me. Mm. No one says that, <laughs> but they're wrestling with it inside. So those are just some of the issues. Yeah, it's that painful self-awareness that, um, but you need to, at least I need to come to grips with myself and, and yeah. see, see things for as sure. they truly are. Yeah. I was just thinking, you know, I work in crisis ministry with pastors. And so my numbers may be a little skewed, but I think about two out of every three pastors I talk with, uh, whether they're solo pastors or senior pastors or even associate pastors, probably two out of every three are seriously thinking about leaving their current ministry or leaving ministry altogether because of COVID and the current environment. What are you hearing along those lines? Are, are you facing a lot of discouragement among pastors? I would say, you know, I certainly am reading those kind of statistics um, from an anecdotal perspective. I'm not hearing a lot of people who want to quit. I think they still feel a real clear sense of calling, but they just feel so under-equipped to mm. face a pandemic and the issues that arise because of, because of a pandemic. And, um, you know, obviously you often hear like, I didn't go to seminary. I never learned in seminary what to do when a pandemic hits Yeah, because it's so all encompassing. Like we're, we're trained to learn how to deal with depressed people. Not that we do it perfectly or anxious people or people who are dealing with suicidal tendencies even, but what do you do when you have a polarized congregation who exist in a polarized culture, who exist in a world that's polarized um, with all these issues. And we've all talked about those, those things till we're blue in the face. I don't mean to keep revisiting those things, but I think people just feel really under-equipped, but I haven't heard so much about people wanting to quit. That doesn't mean they're not feeling that. I just haven't heard that as much. And that, that really does highlight kind of the um, natural sense of ministry that, that it's this hard work. Uh, it, it's very demanding. Uh, it, uh, requires of, of those who engage in it perhaps more than they, as you say, feel that they can uh, offer, that they're inadequate or uh, not certain of their competencies and uh, just how, how crucial both uh, having a, a trust in God to, to equip those whom he has called, uh, but also to maintain good, healthy rhythms, healthy patterns, healthy perspectives uh, as you go about doing the, the work of ministry. Uh, and I wanted to lean into that a little bit. You recently shared um, on your Facebook post a, a Scott Saul's quote, which I thought was powerful. Uh, I want to read it for our listeners. Uh, Saul says, almost every healthy pastor I know meets regularly with a therapist and or spiritual director. Shepherds who lack shepherding risk being eaten by wolves, or even worse, they risk becoming wolves themselves. 
you posted that. Unpack that. How did that impact you? And, and what were you hoping to, to have those who read it here? Okay, I hope this is okay to say on a PIR broadcast or podcast, but I have a man crush on Scott Sauls. And so what I mean by <laughs> hey, that- Hey, you got, you're going to live with the implications of that. No, what I mean to say is I have great respect for him as a person, yeah. as an author, as a speaker, because I think he's really um, tuned into the pulse of culture, but also pastors, um, the church culture. And what I mean by that, uh, he has a book called A Gentle Answer that speaks to how we address issues of civility and um, on just in the public square, so to speak. And really the public square in many ways is social networking, but how people engage with each other, especially as it has to do with different opinions. And so I really feel like he does that well. But I would say that particular quote, it resonated for me because I've seen really bad examples of it. And I've seen really good examples of it. And I'm happy to report that I see a lot of good examples of it. Mm. I feel like in my current context, I'm surrounded by people who, if they're not self-aware and don't know what their blind spots are, they're actually the first to admit that and saying, I need people. I don't like it. It's not always fun, but I need people to speak into my life. So I feel like uh, those who are open to the input from others, whether it's a spiritual director, whether it's a counselor, uh, even another pastor in another organization or another maybe area of your denomination, for them to have that saying that it's, it's, it highlights the difference between transparency and vulnerability as I understand it. Transparency is like showing you myself. Vulnerability is giving you the permission and actually inviting you very clearly to speak into what I've shared with you. Mm. So I, I look at that and I can tell you examples of people who uh, actually pride themselves on not needing somebody else. And I always find myself shocked to hear that. Now, I realize there's some good writing out there about narcissism in the pastorate, and I've seen it. I think not everyone's a full-blown narcissist, but I think people who think that they're fine, I have my wife, I've got the Lord, I've got the word, who believe that they're above that need, I would be very concerned. I think those are narcissistic features. Um, I believe, uh, I can't remember the author, you probably know him. Oh, Chuck DeGroat, you know, of course, he's one of those people that does some good writing on that. And I've read it in other books as well. I just finished reading um, The Other Half of Church by Jim Wilder. And that was a powerful book. And they talk about um, narcissism in the pastorate. And so I feel like one of the best things that we can do for ourselves to take care of our souls is to recognize that we don't have it all figured out and we literally do need people. So for me as a pastor to tell you, my people in my congregation, that you need people, I have no business saying that unless I have prioritized it myself. And so I think given to our own devices, if we're not letting other people speak into our lives at the very least, we're not going to be self-aware. And at the worst, we could become wolves. And we don't even know that we're doing that. In fact, it would be easy for us to be devouring others and, and not being aware that we're doing that. That's what hurts me. I've just seen it so many times. And so that's kind of where that was coming from. I, I guess it's reflective. I think of, um, was it Ezekiel 33, the indictment against the, the uh, shepherds, um, you know, eating, feeding on their own sheep. 
Uh, you had another post uh, here. I, I was just creeping on your Facebook page, so that's why I get all these. That's posts. a little no, creepy. No, right? actually, no, actually, you're on my feed, so I <laughs> I get these, and I always look forward to them. An anonymous quote, I guess, it just uh, said that practicing the presence of God both precedes and empowers practicing the presence of people. And I'm thinking, you know, in pastoral ministry, how important it is this very point that you just made uh, to be ministering out of the fullness of God rather than trying to create a godness about what you're doing, but how easily it is for pastors, for ministry leaders to fall into that sense of, okay, I've got to somehow manufacture a holy moment here. So so how does practicing the presence of God both precede and empower practicing the presence of people? So I'm going to attribute that to Pete Scazzaro, even though he didn't say it, because I was reading one of his devotionals one morning, and that's where I came up. So it's quote unquote, my quote, but it's not because no one has an original quote. (laughs) Uh, But um, the whole idea of practicing the presence of God, you know, we've all read those, you know, Brother Lawrence and so forth uh, that we've read throughout the years. And the whole idea of just inviting, well, not inviting, but just really increasing our awareness of God's presence in our everyday lives. But I think uh, especially in ministry or people helpers or people in ministry, it's a real temptation to get good at it. Hmm. And I don't mean that we shouldn't seek excellence. Uh, we should grow. We should grow in our, our skills and hone them for God's glory. But um, I don't want to get good at what I do. And what I mean by that is that when I get good at what I do, I find that I'm really kind of enamored by my own being so clever And so practicing the presence of God and being so clear that I just desperately need him and I need to be in touch with and in tune with him. And then out of the fullness of that, being able to practice the presence of people. I I don't think it's rocket science, but it's something that I've learned that I need to keep doing. So when you you talk about practicing the presence of God, maybe, maybe being in God's presence reminds us that we aren't God. So we don't try to be God for other people. Exactly. That's very well said. You should put that quote on Facebook, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can attribute it to Tim Johnson, who's attributing (laughs) it to Pete Scazzaro, who probably got it from Ignatius or somebody along down down the line. Let's go with the Desert Fathers. That's way more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Pastoral ministry can be painful, and sometimes that pain can become all-encompassing. Pastor, if you are hurting, if you are stuck, if you are burned out, If you have been forced out of ministry, if you have lost your job because of moral compromise, please hear what we know at PIR Ministries. You are not alone. God still loves you. God is not done with you, and He is still accomplishing His purposes in your life. We are here to help you find new hope. Contact us at PIRMinistries.org. So, Tim, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to serve on the PIR board and uh, what resonates with you about the ministry of PIR. So it's very interesting. I, I mentioned those four C's to you, but there's another C. And um, I, I put this with coaching, but I'll, I'll make it a fifth C, which is care. Uh, one of the things that is a very sobering but powerfully redemptive reminder to me is that I get to be involved in processes of restoration for pastors who have fallen, 
or have been uh, prematurely exited, which of course, you know, from ministry, which of course is the heart of PIR. But I was working um, in, in the first six years, I worked in my role as director of pastoral care. I think I worked through, it wasn't, most of them were either six month or one year, but some of them were two year processes. I worked through at least six restoration processes and all of them are just very, very weighty. Mm -hmm. And so as I got, as I was involved with that, one of the things that God reminded me of, uh, it's been, uh, again, here's another alliteration, (laughs) but um, there are five R's that we've kind of processed with, um, with the whole idea of restoration, because when somebody has either confessed a sin or fallen into sin, or they're in a situation where they've been exited from a church and they're not ready for it and they're hurting, but especially for those people who are actually um, needing to undergo a restoration process because of some kind of moral compromise. Uh, What I appreciate is that in the past, a lot of our approaches with those needing restoration is we started with repentance and then we moved to, um, and my brain is not thinking as clear as I would like, as I would like to think it is, but there's repentance, there's reconciliation, there's uh, restitution. And then last of all, there's restoration, but we've added one because we often add, start with repentance because I think we've assumed people are ready to repent. So we actually, in the restoration process, and the reason I'm saying this is how I got led to PIR, is uh, the recognition piece. I think a lot of times when people have been found out, or even if they come forward with their sin, they still may not have really understood the gravity of what they've done, or how the gravity of what they've done, how it's offended the heart of God. God loves them, God loves us, but still, it's a serious matter or the gravity of how they've hurt other people because people will tend to often in that case, start to defend themselves. Well, I did this, but people don't understand that I did this because of this over here. And basically they're doing a lot of running around trying to defend themselves and they're exerting or expending more energy in defending themselves than they are in the whole issue of recognizing what they've done. So as I look at that, there's recognition, there's repentance, there's reconciliation, restitution, and then ending with restoration. I I think one of the issues that we have with that is that 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 is something that we we need to pay attention to the whole issue of recognition. But as I was working on one restoration process, I was talking to a gentleman who is in one of our churches. He is an elder, and he had found out about PIR. Uh, through Roy Yankee, and uh, I was actually contacting PIR for some assistance for this one church situation. This elder was a member of the church uh, where I was working with a restoration situation. And so I met up with Roy in Detroit. I can't remember exactly where it was. And we both immediately sensed a kindred spirit in, in the things that we care about. He told me a story. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, wow, where has this organization been? So uh, we became fast friends, but then it became more than that. It became more of a kind of thing like, uh, I really love what PIR stands for and what it's about. And so 
I think it was a couple years ago, I can't remember exactly when it was that Roy invited me to consider serving on the board, given the fact that we there was a lot of resonance between what we care about and also what we do. Yeah, I think, you know, just your 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 realization that there needs to be recognition before there can really be repentance um, is, a, is a key piece to to the, the work of restoration and uh, certainly something that, that we've seen again and again uh, in the work that we do. So I appreciate that, that perspective. So what can pastors be doing to cultivate a healthier culture for ministry? Not just their own soul care, but the culture of the church they work in and, and the people they work with. Well, I think there's something you can do with your own team, like if you have a staff, and that's one thing, and then something you can do with your, your elders or your leaders, and then your congregation as a whole. And um, each of those need to be, um, I think they need to be discerned in their appropriate context. So what I do with, uh, for example, my staff might be different than what I do with the whole congregation. But I think it's creating, uh, not only talking about the values of transparency and um, confession and repentance, and the fact that this is a safe place for you to do that, I think a lot of people, even on a team or a staff or like elders or congregation, are going, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. But I've also seen that when people confess their sins, they're crucified. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think sometimes we try to create culture on a team or with elders or a congregation, and we don't, uh, we don't clean up the past, for example. So I know that oftentimes when we're trying to create a culture of trust, we inadvertently or subconsciously think that, oh, we're going to create something new and they're all going to be on board with it. But what we haven't recognized is that there may be a level of organizational distrust of even this kind of talk. Like, yeah, they talk about safety, but trust me, it's not safe when X or Y happens. Mm -hmm. And so I think you kind of have to, lack of a better word, you need to exegete people's stories and how they're dealing with the whole issue of safety because if you come in and saying you're, you're just assuming that you're creating this new culture and we're going to talk about these values and you haven't taken time to hear people's stories, then you haven't done your due diligence. So I think, and it, and it does take extra time, but I do believe it's time worth spent. Um, I do believe that when you get to know, for example, with your staff, get to know their stories, not just their competencies, because they're usually hired because of certain competencies and areas. Mm-hmm. But if you lean into issues of uh, even character, because I think, you know, that book, Dangerous Calling, that came out several years ago by Paul David Tripp, that was the hardest, one of the hardest books he ever had to write because he had to say some hard things about churches and how they view pastors. And I think it's true for us. I think one of the things he said that when search teams look for pastors, they, they assume character, they look for competence, they look for calling, they look for chemistry but they assume character. And my feeling is if I'm going to create a culture like on a staff or elders, I'm going to say, yes, we expect our elders or our staff to be men and women, depending on the church context, men and women of integrity. That's great. I think that's still a good standard, but we also have seen many examples where people who we were sure had integrity start unraveling and things Mm -hmm. come out, especially if they're kind of high profile figures but I operate with the perspective that you are broken. Now, I'm not saying you are sinning, but you are broken because you live in the world. 
So how are you navigating your brokenness? Hmm. Not do, are you broken? You are. It's kind of like what John Stott said years ago, not, not just in the areas of sexuality, but he said, none of us, because of the fall, none of us is straight. But that's kind of a hard thing to say to a person because what are you saying? Well, because of the fall, we all tend toward um, idolizing things, idolizing people, and we all tend to develop our own little ways of soothing ourselves. You know what? It's a human thing. Now, God is inviting us to something greater, but I think we all know that. But then when it comes to our path, well, they should be beyond that. So they shouldn't be dealing with that. And I'm thinking, of course they are. So I get here again, I get to lead first with my people, with my elders, with my staff, whatever. I'm going to say, I'm sure you have areas of brokenness. I encourage you as you walk with the Lord to do good self-care, good soul care, but also uh, be inviting other people into your life as you're doing that. And guess what? As you are doing that, we're developing not personal, just personal soul care, but we are experiencing the possibility of a burgeoning culture of people who are doing good soul care. So it becomes corporate soul care, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. I, you know, the whole perspective of, uh, I'm going to call it removing the pedestal mm-hmm. that, that we so quickly put our leaders upon uh, and creates um, both that false, I, you know, the, the idolatry, that false worship, but also uh, then drives uh, a wedge between an individual and the right work of soul care, because, well, now I have this persona that I have to keep up um, based on what I'm getting, you know, how I'm being affirmed or, or all the feedback that's coming to me. Uh, and it just creates uh, such a culture of unhealth and, and danger. I can think of a great example. We have um, somebody in our region who as the lead pastor is actually dealing with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. That's one of the first things he told his staff. Now, some people would say, oh, that's not appropriate because we all have issues and I'm not sure that we can handle that. I'm thinking, if you can't handle that your leader is a human being, then you probably ought to do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But boy, just finding that, that safety level um, right. th- that allows for that is, is so difficult. And, and I'm thinking in this, and I want to kind of pick your brain a little bit on this now, because not everyone who's listening to the broadcast is, is part of the missionary church in the central district and has access to your ministry. Um, and finding those networks, finding those connections is so difficult, so challenging uh, for pastors, for ministry leaders. How would you encourage pastors to to find, to create, to, to engage in the kind of healthy relationships that are going to allow for some of the things that we've talked about? It's a great question. I actually had somebody in another denomination, a uh, worship pastor at a church in our town and in another denomination heard about our networks and says, can I pick your brain for a while? And he said, I, I don't know if there's a lot there to pick, but you know, um, <laughs> I'd be glad to help you see what I've seen. It's been pretty organic. I wish I could tell you that I started out with this really clarified vision. I didn't. I said, Lord, people I know need to be connected. They can't depend on one personality. So how can we move forward in establishing the function that's not dependent on certain people? So I I think for me, I started with a very small group of people. Like with the worship pastors, I just started three or four guys 
uh, that first group just had guys. We have women in the group now as well. It's just so much texture and beauty to our conversations to hear that perspective, but started small. And then out of that, almost allowed that group of people to say, okay, why are we here? Kind of casting the vision, like, what are you experiencing here? Who else do you think needs this? And what would be the goal of gathering? Because what you don't want to do is get another group because everyone's got a group. They've got their small group. They might be in the Sunday school class from church, whatever. They've got their neighbor. They've got a game club or board game club. You know, they've got all kinds of groups, but you have to be really crystal clear as to why we would gather and what value would be added to our life. So I I would say start small, um, establish a vision, a clear vision as to what you'd want to see. Um, I know it's kind of um, cliche, but really developing some smart goals around that, you know, the Mm. specific measurable, that whole thing. Um, And, and maybe try it for six months. Say, is this something that's meeting a need? And if not, then we'll reevaluate. And if it's not helping it, we'll try again. And so even the, the, the groups we have, one of our groups right now uh, is kind of on sabbatical. It's not that it's a bad idea. It's just that there were a lot of people in the group who were in transition. And so it hasn't really gotten off the ground. doesn't mean it's not important. So you have to ask yourself, what is the right timing? But mm. just really asking the Holy Spirit to give some clarity as to the what, the how, the what, the why. And um, it's, I think people are pretty uh, intuitive as to what will work. So I'd say start small and just, just ask the Lord to guide you and the group for some corporate discernment. What do we want to do here? What, what would be the value of adding something like this? I do think there's real value in collaboration, especially um, if you're in the same organization. It doesn't have to be that way, but if you're in the same organization or the same geographical area. So what, one of the things I really appreciate in our area, we've got three churches that they get together. Two of them are in our denomination. Well, one of the others um, is in another denomination, but they are all in a very similar zip code area. And they get together, they pray, they encourage each other, they counsel each other. Um, They're there for each other. So our pastor is actually one of those men. And he talks about this other pastor who's just down the street, who's in another denomination, who believes in him and is praying Mm -hmm. for him. And he does the same for that pastor. So I think some of those things have been born from an intentionality a strong belief in connection, even outside of the denomination, just maybe more based on geography. And God has done some great things through that. Can I give you a real quick example? Sure. Like, so our pastor is 31, young guy, follows uh, pastors who have been well-established, older, uh, really strong Bible teachers, but he's young, but he's got a lot of vision for the neighborhood. Well, we have another church, another denomination, two blocks down the street. And that young pastor, who's about 32, 33, young guy, saw our pastor before he took the role in our church, saw our pastor and his wife in the congregation, brought him up, and he told everyone, this gentleman and his wife are getting ready to take the lead uh, pastor position at First Missionary Church, which is our church. Could we just pray for them and ask God's blessing? Wow. If any of you in this room feel God calling you to join them, I just give you my full blessing. Now, What's wrong with this picture? It's not a church plant. It's an established church. It's another denomination. It's taking away people from your church. And I'm going, that's all about kingdom right there. Yeah. But that happened because these people were connected. And it, it kind of highlights something you've hit here a couple of times already. This um, 
uh, willingness to model what you're seeking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that openness, that open handedness. Um, you know, I think of a pastor who's saying, "Boy, I wish, I wish I had, uh, you know, this companionship or this sure. network, this connection. Um, why not just find somebody and practice it? Do it. Show what it's like." I know I've always responded to that. If if someone has come to me and has said, "Hey, this is what I'd like to see," and then been that. That's so inviting for me to step into that and say, wow, well, if you're going to be that way, then I guess I can be that way too. Sure. Yeah, I, I think these these connections are, are vitally important for pastors. We may not need them all the time, but there will be a time when we do need them. Mm. Um, I, 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 as a young pastor, had a group of older pastors come around me and, and provide just wisdom and leadership and then after a while, things started going really well in the church, and I didn't have quite as much time for those meetings. And guess what happened? <laughs> Pretty soon I was starting to burn out because I didn't have those relationships. I didn't have uh, those. And, and over time, they moved away to other churches, weren't in the same area, and all of a sudden I found myself alone and had to ask for help from from a variety of people like a therapist or a spiritual director and uh, found a mentor and things like that. So mm-hmm. these relationships that we build are essential for our health in the sure. long term. Yep. Well, Tim, uh, it's it's just been such a joy to have you uh, be uh, just a voice in the conversation and and to hear your heart and, and what God's doing. As as you consider those who are listening here today, what words of hope would you like to share with our listeners? Well, I, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm almost 63 years old, and I, A, never thought I'd be doing this. B, uh, I didn't think I'd be in ministry, but I didn't think I'd be in this kind of ministry. Uh, I, I felt like God was probably, I pr- probably was going to be a concert pianist or something. I, I loved that, and, but I am so grateful. I would say every decade has gotten better, not easier, but far more rich and far better, and so as we follow the Lord, uh, he doesn't promise easy, uh, an easy life. In fact, there are probably things ahead for me that will be really, really hard. My fifties were the hardest decade of my life, but the most rich. So the hope that I have in Christ is not based on certain situations or events aligning to make me feel really good about my life. No, but my sense of God's pleasure uh, in being my God and letting me receive his love and loving him back and loving other people has been so good. I am more conscious than ever that I'm a piece of work. I am such a piece of work. And I guess I'm guessing those people who are listening, even you two, you know, you have those moments where you just look at your heart and soul going, I am such a piece of work. How is it that God can use me? And God is so faithful and saying, oh, trust me, I know you're a piece of work. <laughs> We're going to keep working on that stuff, but do you know how much I'm, how much affection I have for you? And this whole grace thing is not a theological thing. It's true, and you can find your hope in me. One of the things that I heard from Gene, and it's a quote that's one of my favorites, and it speaks so clearly into how I want to view my life, but how I want to speak in others. And I think I've shared it even with you two gentlemen. Um, Gene Habecker, who is Uh, used to be the president of the American Bible Society and then also president of Huntington College and Taylor University has said, and he says it's not original with him, but I told him that I quote him because it's original with me through him. But he says, 
as a leader, you are invited to absorb chaos, give back calm, and inspire hope. Absorb chaos, give back calm, and inspire hope. Now, that's just not a positive thing like, oh, you know, this is hard, but there's hope out there. It's kind of floating, ethereal. No, it's based on the person of Jesus and the gospel that will never change. And so it's beautiful. As a leader, we get to do that every day. Mm. So Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to, to join us today and being part of this conversation. I really appreciate you and your heart for pastors and especially your work as a board member for PIR. You are a great encouragement to me and to the other staff members. So thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. Tim. And as always, we invite you, our listeners, to rate and review Hope Renewed in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app and to share this podcast with your friends on social media. It's a great way to help us continuing to bring hope to others. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that as you open yourself to God's work in you, your hope in Christ would flourish. PIR Ministries partners with God and the church in the work of pastoral renewal and restoration to cultivate new hope for healthy ministry lives. You can learn more about us at our webpage, pirministries.org, or email us at info at pirministries.org. Thanks for joining us for Hope Renewed, and remember, the hope Christ offers will never put us to shame.